0: Well, why do you attend church? If you asked 10 people that question, you would probably get 10 different answers, right? Things like, well, my family goes and so they kind of drag me along with them and I might as well. I grew up going to the church and my parents taught me I should, so I figured when I became an adult, I might as well continue going. Because I like the music. That's a good reason to go to church, right? Because I want to get recharged on my day off for the rest of my week. Because all my friends are there. Because the teaching is uplifting. Maybe because it's the right thing to do, whatever that means. I want to be a better person. Or maybe my kids like it here. We have a great children's ministry, and so uh, they, they come. I might as well hang out while they're in there right? There are lots of reasons why we are part of the church and why we want to be involved, Uh, but for most of us, it's not just one simple thing, right? Well, this morning we're kicking off a new four-part series called God's Glorious Church, and as we work through each week, we'll discover a bit more of who we're called to be as God's people, as his church. Whatever our current view of church is and whatever reasons we give for wanting to be part of the church uh, one thing we can be sure of is that Christianity without the church that is without the gathering of God's people is like summertime without ice cream or as we sang and more accurately it's like a wedding without a bride it just doesn't work The church is central to God's plans and purposes to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world and to continue to sanctify believers. And therefore, it's critical that we understand who we are meant to be as the church if we're going to carry out God's mission in our lives and in the world. As we kick off, uh, this series this morning. I'm excited that I get to remind you a little bit about who you are as the church from the book of First Peter. Uh, we'll be in First Peter chapter uh, 2 verses 9 and 10 as Ryan mentioned, but uh, just a little background. This book was written according to chapter 1 to those who are chosen by God, living as exiles dispersed abroad. Chosen by God the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit and called to obedience through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who Peter addresses this letter to. Well, the book of 1 Peter immediately becomes relevant to you and I, right? It's to those who are chosen, those who God has called to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ and are living as exiles abroad. In its immediate context, this letter was written to those who were physical exiles, who had been driven out of their homes and out of their land for various reasons. But as we look at the whole of Scripture, uh, we're quick to realize that all believers are living as exiles on earth. We are not at home. We were created for somewhere else, for something else, something more, better, fuller. As those who are called by God and placed somewhere that is not ultimately our home, Peter's reminders then in chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 are relevant to all Christians across the globe and throughout history. The question we're going to ask this week as we discover a bit of who we're called to be is, who are you? Who are you? We're going to see five answers to that question as Peter addresses these Christians uh, in his letter, also known as the church. So, who are you? Let's read these two verses and be reminded of who we are. He says this, But you, church, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says, first, you are a chosen race. What does it mean to be a chosen race? Well, in the Old Testament, God chose a race, right? The ethnic Jews, that nation of Israel, for a special relationship with him. They shared many benefits uh, of that relationship that they had with God that can really be summed up in three main areas. First, a blessing relationship, right? God uh, covenanted with them to have a special relationship that the rest of the nations didn't experience. They could know who God was, but they didn't get to interact with him like he did with the Jews. Second, he promised them land, right? The land of Israel. And Uh, Finally, he promised them offspring, right? Starting with Abraham, he said, I will give you offspring that will be in number as the stars are in the sky. God promised Israel, that chosen nation, the Jews, that he would give them those three things. And now, here, Peter tells us that there's a shift, right? This letter isn't about ethnic Jews, it's about Christians. It's about exiles, Jews and Gentiles who have been chosen by God. Just like the nation of Israel benefited from this relationship, so Christians now benefit. Though we're not promised land or offspring, we do have the status of being called in Christ with all of its benefits. But what does it look like practically then to be a chosen race? Well, first, To be part of a chosen race, it means that you've come to a point of saving faith in Jesus Christ by confessing him as Lord and following him with your life. That's how you enter into this status of chosen race. Unless you confess Jesus, this can't be true of you. But when you do, then it looks like a group of people coming together under the title of chosen for the sake of God's glory this chosen race is different than what we usually think about when we think of race. It's not a race based on skin color or family origin or ethnicity at all. It's a race based on the call of God among a group of people. People of every color, every tribe, every tongue, every political affiliation, every sports fandom, every parenting style, every age and stage of life, every marital status, on and on the list grows, that this group of people comes together in spite of differences, sometimes in spite of strong differences, and loves one another. It means that we are a people, both locally as Crossview and globally as the church, uh, made up of other brothers and sisters around the world, we're a group of people who must include believers who are not like us who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't process things like us or eat like us or worship like us. We're going to see a bit later, uh, as Ryan alluded to, the purpose for which God has called Christians, this chosen nation. But for now, church, be reminded, you are a chosen nation. You, together with those you agree with and disagree with, those you like and don't like, you are united in that you have been chosen By God. If we're going to answer the question about who we are, we must learn how to live our diversity in unity. In spite of what the world says about these lines we draw in the sand over secondary issues, the world would call us to tear each other apart and to be divided over all sorts of issues. Your fellow believers are chosen by God right alongside you. So, as you engage with one another in discussions about all sorts of things, and as you do life together, whether you agree or disagree, remember who you are and who you're talking to. A brother, a sister, one who, like you, has been chosen and called by God as part of this chosen race. Number two, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. Priests in the Old Testament had basically two jobs, right? They would speak to God on behalf of people and they would speak to people on behalf of God. Only priests in the Old Testament could enter the holy areas in the temple and make sacrifices. And they could only do that after they themselves had become ceremonially clean. And so people relied on them to make sacrifices on their behalf. Unclean sinners were not able to go before God even to make sacrifices for themselves. And so God made an allotment, right, that a priest uh, would be able to make a sacrifice on his own behalf. He was the only one who could do that. Uh, He would become clean and then he could go in and make a sacrifice for God's people. All of that changed when Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. The curtain separating God and man was torn in two. And now, here, Peter tells us that we, individually as Christians and corporately as the church, are a royal priesthood. Theologically, this is a doctrine we refer to as the priesthood of all believers. It means that we don't need someone to go to God on our behalf. We've got direct, direct access to him. There's no middleman. We can confess sin. We can ask for things. We can praise. We can even just dialogue with God and talk to him about how our lives are going and the good things and the bad things and the struggles and all of that. The priesthood is no longer needed as it was in the Old Testament because when we confess Jesus as Lord, we're filled with the Spirit, and covered by the blood of christ and because of what he accomplished we have greater access to god now than even the high priest did in the old testament and so christian you are part of this royal priesthood and as such you have responsibilities don't worry i'm not going to tell you that this afternoon you have to go prepare an animal for slaughter in your backyard You don't have to do that, right? Jesus was the sacrificial lamb for us all. But there are other aspects of the priesthood that you are responsible for. Namely, you represent people to God and God to people. So what does that look like? Well, first, you represent God to people. You take on the role of believer priest and you speak the truth of the gospel into people's lives. There's a popular phrase that pops up regularly on social media that's uh, usually wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and it goes something like this. Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. You guys have heard this, right? It's familiar to many of you. I know that that can sound really great, and there's part of that that we must affirm as Christians, right? Our conduct must match our words. Our lives should boldly proclaim the gospel. But if I could edit that sentence, I think I would alter it a bit to be something like, preach the gospel always, if possible, or when possible, use words. Romans ten fourteen talks about this idea of reaching the lost. Paul writes this. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You, Christian, are that preacher that Paul is referring to. So, believer, priest, wherever God has placed you, represent God to the people around you. Your family, your co-workers, your classmates, your teachers, your neighbors, your parents, your grandparents. Wherever and whenever you have the chance, live out your identity as royal priest, declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, speaking the truth, in love calling for repentance of sins and new life through jesus christ second you represent people to god i think this one is simple pray just pray pray like crazy keep a running list of people you're praying for and of prayer requests people that you're praying would come to know jesus personally. People who you've agreed to pray for after service, right? We have, yeah, will you pray for me? Sure, I'll pray for you. And then throughout the week, we forget, right? Write it down. Keep a list. Go to the Lord regularly. Take issues that are going on in the community or nationally or globally and regularly, boldly petition God. As a believer, as one chosen by God from eternity past, as a member of this royal priesthood, you have a direct line to the God of the universe. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of it. We've talked about this before, right? And Dan uh, has talked about uh, different kinds of prayers. And I want to encourage you, again, make big asks of your big God. Pastor and author H.B. Charles says it like this. He says, pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. Pray until you feel like it. As one chosen by God and called by him into the role of royal priest, you have an obligation to represent not just God to people, but people to God. So identify people and groups and organizations and nations to pray for, that they would be radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would have opportunities to use your words to speak the truth in love and declare what Jesus has done. In his book, uh, First Peter, for you, Juan Sanchez writes this. He says, Together, as God's priests, we are the mediators of God's blessing to the world. If we are silent, who will tell the world about the glorious salvation God offers in Christ? If we are not holy and loving, who will show the world the exhilarating joy of life in his kingdom? Is the church imperfect? Yes. Is God at work in the church to purify her? Yes. Does God have another plan by which to make his glory in Jesus known to the world? No, he has chosen an imperfect people to be the display of his kingdom here on earth. That is quite a calling and privilege and responsibility. You are a believer priest. You represent God to people and people to God. It's a holy privilege. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And number three, you are a holy nation. The word holy means something like dedicated or set apart. In the Bible, uh, it means usually dedicated or set apart for the Lord. And so you could loosely translate this something like you are a set apart nation. Set apart nation. Well, set apart for what? Throughout the Old Testament, again, Israel was a holy nation set apart by God. Peter now draws off that language and uses it here of the scattered church, followers of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, uh, you may be familiar with uh, these rules and regulations and all kinds of laws that seem to be random and not really related to morality at all right for example uh in leviticus 11 people are prohibited from eating pigs because they have divided hooves but they don't chew the cud like what's that about rabbits are also prohibited on the base, basis that they do chew the cud but they don't have hooves at all right there's nothing moral about that except for god said don't do it and so it becomes moral i guess later in leviticus 19 we see uh, there's prohibitions of things like cross-breeding livestock, or sowing fields with multiple kinds of seed, or putting on garments made out of two different kinds of materials. These things seem so strange in our culture as we read them, but God laid them out for the Israelites for a reason. I want to suggest that a primary reason for some of these more obscure ceremonial laws are about this idea. They're about this idea of being set. Apart, When the Jews couldn't eat pork, though the nations around them could, they were reminded of their purpose. When they could only dress a certain way, they looked different and they were reminded of their allegiance to Yahweh. And beyond that, beyond this inward focus of being reminded of who they were, when the nations watched how they, as they interacted and saw these Jews acting all weird, right? They're not eating rabbits and they're only allowed to sow one kind of crop in their field and they're only allowed to dress like this. They wondered why. And in turn, the Jews could point to Yahweh and say, well, because he said so. We're a chosen nation. We're God's people. He's called us into relationship with him and so we live differently church this is the call for you today not to give up bacon thank goodness that'd be rough but to live different from the world that's your call to live different from the world a friend uh, shared a clip of pastor matt chandler talking about this this week this idea of living differently as an evangelistic tool he says this the bar right now of being salt and light is fairly low There was a day when you better get those apologetics in, but now it's like, don't be angry all the time. Like, don't be a jerk. People look at that and say, there's something different about this guy. Don't be a jerk. Actually give people, specifically brothers and sisters in Christ, the benefit of the doubt. It's crazy. You teach second graders that, but the church, we've lost our mind. We're devouring one another. No benefit of the doubt. Wanting to isolate in a tribe, vilifying other churches. Let's not do that. Let's not let the storyline be that we give into the outrage of our day, but rather just determined by the grace of God to love one another, serve one another, bless one another, give one another the benefit of the doubt, champion one another, mourn with one another. The 59 one-anothers in the New Testament call us to be the kind of people that won't give in to that kind of nonsense, but shine like a light in the darkness. Church, he's right. The bar is isn't that high. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these fruits of the Spirit, these traits are exceedingly rare in our culture today. When we live these out with one another and with the world, whether that's in person or perhaps more publicly on social media, when we live these out, we honor the Lord. And people wonder, what's different? What's different about that guy? What's different about that girl? Peter says, believer, church, this is who you are. You are a nation set apart for God such that people might see you and get to know him. So as you look at your life, ask the Spirit to convict where he needs to. Where have you become embittered towards another believer? Where have you trashed the name of Jesus by sharing content online that brings shame to his church? Where have you been unkind to your unbelieving friends and misrepresented Jesus? And, alternatively, where can you press into the things that God has called you to champion? Where do you need to continue showing love, to continue being patient, to continue being kind? You can't do any of this on your own you can't correct your behavior or press into the good things and the good news is you don't have to do it alone last week dan talked about the down payment that is the holy spirit and that down payment helps you in more ways than you can begin to comprehend rely on him to continue enduring in patience and peace and gentleness ask for his help to convict and correct and know that when you feel the weight of that conviction It's for your good and God's glory. It's not punitive, right? It's not meant to punish you. Jesus took your punishment on the cross. He already bore that. The Spirit wants to prune you and shape you more and more into the image of God's Son every day. So ask Him for that. Ask that He would move in your heart. Ask for help as you seek to be a holy nation set apart to reflect God's glory. I don't want to come off ultra negative here uh, with you, church. Certainly, uh, we all have areas as individuals that we need to improve on, right? We've all posted things and said things and talked behind people's backs and on and on and done things that don't honor the Lord, right? We and I need to have that removed from my heart and crossview as a pastor i have the privilege of interacting with lots of new people uh, when they come in and the thing that i hear over and over and over again when people check out crossview is that we are a welcoming place where people come who genuinely like each other who genuinely like each other as we've returned to gathering in person and more and more uh, coming out of covid and as we have children's ministry launched and families uh, are more Back, it's been so awesome to see God's people hanging out after services, engaging in fellowship, and praying for one another, and laughing together, and having all sorts of conversations after the services. That's what the body is supposed to be like, that's what it looks like to be a nation that's set apart. What we have here in the church, both at Crossview Church and globally with the church, is and should be unique. It's people of all backgrounds and opinions coming together. People who might have nothing in common, united and loving one another because they've both been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. For many of you with someone else in that room, that may be true. You may only have in common with someone else here that you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, and that's enough. So church, Crossview, keep pressing into that. Keep loving one another. Keep Gathering together on Sundays and sticking around after and encouraging and praying for and entering into one another's lives. Keep having new people come in and saying, What's different? What's different about this place? Why do they love each other like this? Why do they get along so well in spite of obvious differences? Be a holy nation set apart to reflect the character and diversity and glory of God in heaven. Number four. You are a people for his possession. You are not your own. You are not your own. Has anyone reminded you of that recently? Advertisers scream that we're supposed to find fulfillment in the things they're selling. Things that will supposedly dramatically improve our lives. False teachers like Joel Osteen tell us that we're supposed to live our best life now and that God wants us to be as happy as we can possibly be on earth. The point of your life is not to find happiness and fulfillment and to squeeze as much fun as you can out of your earthly experience. The point of your life is to pour it out for God's glory. You are his. Your money is not yours. Your home is not yours. Your vehicle is not yours. Your life is not yours. You are a people for his possession. That means at least two things. One, it means that you must, as a Christian, hold loosely to what you have, recognizing that at any moment God may call you to use it for his sake, to surrender it, to give it up for his purposes. Second, it means that God's got you. He's got you. In this life and in the next, you are firmly and securely in his grip. Whatever trials and sorrows and difficulties in this life may come your way, you can sleep at night knowing that if you've confessed Jesus, you are resting in God the Father. And that whatever comes, be it good or bad, life or death, you are not out of his grasp. He's got you. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching and he says this, Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Friends, God knows the number of hairs on your head. And if that number is regularly diminishing, like it is for me, God still knows. He doesn't forget about you. He doesn't neglect you. He doesn't leave you hanging. He is acutely aware of all that you want and need. All of that before you even know any of those things. And he loves you deeply. You're a people for his possession. Your life is not your own. Praise God. Praise God. On your own, on our own, we're in big trouble, right? We're stuck spinning our wheels and looking for fulfillment in all sorts of empty places. We're unable to experience life as it's meant to be, and we're headed for eternal separation from God. But with him, with him when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ and trust him for forgiveness and confess him as Lord, you are no longer your own. You don't have to worry about who will care for you or if in the end your life really meant something. You don't have to live in fear of death because you can be confident that one day God will with you restore all things. And as we approach eternity, the things of this life will fade away and God's glory will remain. Whether you made a lot of money or won a lot of arguments or were wildly successful in your career or experienced every earthly pleasure, all of those things will be so irrelevant you can't even imagine. But what will matter is that you've placed your trust in Jesus and become part of the people for his possession. If you haven't done that, and you're searching for fulfillment, and you're looking in all the wrong places, turn to Jesus. Turn to him. There's one more you are statement at the end of this text, but after a people for possession, Peter gets to the point. What's the purpose of of all of this? Why are we, in contrast to the disobedient, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his possession? The last part of verse 9 tells us It says, so that, here's your purpose, you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that you may proclaim his praises. We as the church and as believers exist to proclaim the glories of God, especially as it relates to his work in salvation, right? He says, calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We must proclaim the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has been the purpose of the church since the very very beginning, right? Everything we do is about making disciples of Jesus Christ, about leading people in a growing relationship with him, whether that's beginning a relationship or deepening one that's existed for 50 years or more. We, you as the church, exist to proclaim the praises of Jesus Christ, who called you out of death and into life? Sometimes it feels like the church has gotten away from this message, right? Instead of proclaiming the salvific praises of Jesus Christ, we latch on to other causes, whatever they may be. Again, in 1 Peter for You, Juan Sanchez writes this Sadly, more and more evangelicals are replacing the proclamation aspect of the mission with other concepts of missions today. It is fashionable and easier to replace gospel proclamation with social justice or good deeds as mission. But our display mission is incomplete without gospel proclamation. Peter's mandate to display the glory of our king and his rule for the purpose of witness is meant to undergird gospel proclamation, but never to replace it. We are to announce to all who are broken, hurt, oppressed, and abused, that King Jesus has come to end all injustice and will return again to bring a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace, and that all who repent and believe in Jesus may enter the kingdom and become part of the new covenant community now, praying and waiting for the kingdom to come. We must declare the kingdom. We must proclaim the excellence of our king. This Uh, proclaiming other things and getting away from the messages uh, is the outworking of the idea of preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. When we do that, what happens is we latch on to other things. We latch on to even good causes, even uh, championing things that God would have us champion. We do good deeds. We work against oppression and abuse and on and on. And those are all good things. But when we stop there, When we never connect our work with the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, we fall short of our call and ultimately we leave those we're ministering to with a half-baked hope. As we carry out our identity as followers of Jesus, as we do ministry and love people, we must proclaim his excellence, use words, speak truth, lead people directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. Your purpose, church, the reason that God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light is to proclaim his praises. When you sleep and when you rise and when you're home and when you're out and when you feel like it and when you don't, declare the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and give him all the praise he's due. Finally, our text concludes with a summary you are statement in verse 10. Let's look there. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who are you? In summary, you are God's people. You are God's people. We identify ourselves in all sorts of ways, right? I was recently asked this question. If someone came up to you, how would you introduce yourself? Uh, I'd never thought about that before. I usually just do it. Uh, But as I thought about it more, I think I might say things like, I'm married to Michelle. Uh, I'm a dad of three kids. It's football season, so I might say I'm a Packer fan. When I share those things with you, you learn something about me, right? Whether that's good or bad, whether you like it or not, you learn something about me. You, Christian, you, church, are God's people. That's what marks you. That's what identifies you most deeply you are god's people that's what you are identified as according to peter most primarily not your sports fandom not your marital status not your political affiliation not the college you went to or the career you're in you are god's people united as a chosen race full of diversity and unity in the midst of difference a royal priesthood representing god to man and man to God, a holy nation set apart to reflect His glory, a people for His possession, not your own, with the purpose of proclaiming His praises, the one, the praises of the one who saved you and delivered you from darkness to light, from death to life. Church, let's be a group of people who live out our identity as God's people, fully as we gather on Sundays and as we scatter throughout the week, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of who we are. We thank you that you, in your deep love, called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Would you help us by your Spirit to better live out our calling as your church? Would you unite us over the gospel rather than divide us over secondary issues? As you continue to transform us as individuals into the image of your Son, would you draw us together as a holy nation, set apart for your plans and purposes and for the sake of declaring your praises and reflecting your glory. On our own, we fall terribly short of our calling. We need your help. Would you meet us where we are and use us, Lord? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.